Father in heaven, we are here because you called us, because you have invited us to fellowship with you today, tomorrow, and for eternity. I ask that you would be here right now, that you would take this vessel and use me, that you would be able to speak through me, that I would be able to lift up your love, your power, your goodness, that we could take seriously where we are in earth's history and be able to be who you intended us to be when you created us, when you redeemed us. We are so often failing, so often not understanding what your plans are or how to cooperate with you. We feel like you would be much better off to use somebody else. But we are what you have chosen. And so it's up to you as our creator, as our redeemer, to fashion us into a tool that can be used and to fashion us as a group, as a family, as a church family throughout this world to be able to lift up your glory and finish the work as you've called us to before Jesus comes. So please, once again, we ask that you would speak individually to each person here and that they would go with what you intended them to go with and be used by you as you intended. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to be looking at a, at a bunch of beautiful texts and statements that God has given us to show us how the end of time is going to wrap up, at least in a, in a new and clearer picture that has come to my mind. We're going to be uh, looking at some of the needs of the world that I've been exposed to in our ministry. We started out in Cambodia in the refugee camps on the border. My wife and I just fresh out of college and then learned so much from the people six years in Cambodia as church planting with Adventist Frontier Missions. Um, just an amazing time in their history because of the war, aftermath of the war, intense poverty, 50% of the country under the age of, of 15. And just, just an amazing time there. And then we're back in the States for a while in California pastoring, and then over in Thailand for 10 years where we got to work with Buddhists throughout Southeast Asia, trying to find ways that the gospel could come alive for them, that it would actually make sense. Because for many Buddhists, as we try to communicate, they're just, it, it just seems so strange, very difficult to understand and appreciate. Um, so that's been our experience. And then coming back to the United States, uh, we landed in Houston, Texas, just for a conference, and saw the huge numbers of refugees that were coming to that one city, let alone throughout the United States and Canada. And just realize God was allowing people to come here from countries you cannot go with the gospel, like Somalia and Afghanistan and other places. Uh, so that, that spoke to us as we were coming back to take care of my wife's father and for my daughter who was ready for college instead of sending her around the other side of the world after living in Thailand. And that helped us to recognize now in the age that we live in, in any city around the world, the people that God is wanting to reach have been brought right where we are. And we just need to open our eyes and open our heart and lift up Jesus, and he is going to finish his work. So this is a story, just to begin with, that happened in Thailand when we were living in the Central Valley where there's just almost no Christians at all. And I was headed to the airport to go somewhere, and I, my wife dropped me off in the city center where there were a bunch of taxis. And I, you know, I pray before I get on somewhere usually and say, Please lead me to somebody who's open, somebody we can, I can interact with. And so I passed up two or three taxis and got in another one with a man named Sawan. And Sawan was not the typical Thai. The Thais are kind of stoical and, and stayed in their emotions most of the time, not all of them. But he was just this exuberant guy 
that was very talkative and started asking me all kinds of questions. So as we're going down the road, I begin to share what I'm doing there, and we talk, and finally we get to questions about God and religion, and I'm telling him about who this God is I believe in. And for him, you know, there's Buddha, and there's Hindu gods, and there's spirits and ancestors and different things, but as I'm talking about the creator God and the actual story of where we came from, he said to me, I'm so lucky, I can't believe my good fortune to learn who the creator of this world is, and I'm not even 40 years old. He just, he just began to be excited about everything that I was used to people just kind of like, uh-huh, all religions lead to the same goal. And, but here was a man who was wide open, who'd been eager to know the truth, and I got to be the one who's sitting there telling him for the first time these things. So I get out at the airport, I get his contact so I can be in touch, called him so that he would be able to pick me up, and we began, he began to be the taxi guy that would come when I needed, needed to go somewhere. So we kept sharing, we kept talking, I visited his home, and then one day I was ready to go to the airport, I'd arranged for him to come at 8 o'clock in the evening, and it was 8.10, and I thought, this is strange, I don't know what's going on, that's not normal for him, he's always here like 15 minutes or a half an hour early. So I called his number, and his wife answered the phone. And she said, don't you know? Didn't you hear? Sawan was killed on the way to the airport yesterday. A semi hit him head on. I was so blown away. I called my friend Mike, who worked with us, and said, I need a ride to the airport, but I hope we have time. I want to go by the temple before. So we went by the temple, and there was his wife and his two sons and the monk sitting there in the middle of the Buddhist temple. I was at a loss for words but tried my best to give them some hope and encouragement that this was not the end. Because I knew that Sawan, my friend, had had a chance to at least know about the living God, to respond in some way to the moving, the power of the Holy Spirit, the reality that Jesus at the cross died with Sawan's sins on him, so that if Sawan, even if he didn't fully understand, was, was responding in some way, that the blood of Jesus could save this man. And I don't know for sure, but I'm hoping and praying that at the resurrection, I will be able to see this man, Sawan. He is one less of the 61 million people in Thailand who are unreached, who have not had a chance to know Jesus. In the, in the world, if we were to count up all the uniquely distinct unreached people groups in the world, those who speak their own language, have their own unique culture. I think of the country of Myanmar. You go up one mountain and they're speaking like this, and you go down the other side and they're speaking like that. It's different. They have weddings different and funerals different. These are people that even if they speak the common Burmese language in Myanmar, their heart language is something else. And for sure, grandma and grandpa, if you were to try to share the gospel with them in Burmese, they would not be following. They're people who need the gospel witness before Jesus comes. And how many people are they that they represent? Three billion. Over three billion. Much of the world still is within these distinctly unreached people groups that do not have a vibrant Christian witness. But here's our promise. Isaiah 61, verse 11. I have all the texts on the board. If you have a Bible or a phone you want to follow, that's, that's great too because it's nice to have it right in front of you. It says, for as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before where? All the nations. 
that word is not countries like we think of it. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is in almost every country of the world, but this is talking about ethne, ethnicities, cultural people groups, that he is going to make it possible for his righteousness and the praise of God to be in front of all those people. Now, I've got a lot of quotes that were written down over 100 years ago by a lady named Ellen White that I'm going to share with you as well because they add a distinctive picture to some of the things that we are just hinted at in Scripture that are so beautiful and powerful. And this is from the book Evangelism, page 694. It says, During the loud cry, that final cry the Bible talks about in Revelation 18, the church, aided by providential interpositions of her exalted Lord, will diffuse the knowledge of salvation so abundantly that light will be communicated to every city and town. City? Yes, there are cities where there are no Christians, where there, are no, where there is no one representing Jesus, but towns? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of salvation, so abundantly will the renewing Spirit of God have crowned with success the intensely active agencies that the light of present truth will be seen flashing everywhere. Is that encouraging? There's another quote that actually says, every village, so many times flying over Thailand or these other countries and looking down and realizing how few know Jesus, I thought, how can this ever happen? And it's beginning to come clear in my mind what God is going to do to finish his work. So let's believe it. Believe these promises for India, the country with the most amount of unreached people groups, 2,000 330, representing 1,299,000,000 precious people. What a huge, huge mission field. Let's believe it for China, the next group that has 445 unreached people groups. Now, it's a smaller amount. It says 148 million. There are a billion, more than a billion people in China, but many of those groups are considered reached because there's a growing, vibrant church among them. But still, this many that don't have it who yet are going to get to here. The next one is Pakistan, with 433 unreached people groups, 214 million. And then believe it, for America, where we have 82 unreached people groups, 24,821,000 precious people. We'll talk about that a little more later, but I don't have a lot of time to talk about that's the main focus of our ministry, reach the world next door, because God has allowed these people to come here so they can hear the good news, be able to grasp it, believe it, be discipled, and then in turn disciple back to their countries. Some of them, like they say, the typical person from South Asia, India, and beyond, have over a hundred connections back overseas in the countries they come from. So you reaching one person, it may be the Apostle Paul, it might be the Ethiopian treasurer, it is the person that can in turn turn their country right side up for Jesus. So here's another promise. I love this one from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's powerful. That's the knowledge of God covering the earth in such a beautiful and glorious way that it's amazing. But what does that mean? What does it really mean for the glory of God to be known throughout the earth? That's what we're going to be unpacking. That's connected with the title of our seminar. It says in Exodus 33, 18 to 19, that Moses, in his close relationship with God, coming through many difficulties and his own failures, but ever closer in a relationship with God, 
came to the place where he said, please show me your glory. And many of us are familiar with this passage where God then says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So what is his glory? His character, his goodness, his forgiveness, his graciousness, compassion. He went on to say it a little bit later. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. You've been confused by that last phrase before? It's like a sudden running into the wall. What he's saying is that he first takes the guilty and he causes them to repent. And as they turn to him, they're forgiven and they're no longer guilty. But those who resist that love and persist in their sin, he's not able to pardon as much as he would love to and has made provision through Jesus. So this passage just powerfully unveils what the glory of God is that's going to fill the earth. The problem is that usually when we have looked at this, all we thought about was our personal salvation. What is the glory of God? Oh, that's his character towards me. That's how he's going to forgive me and get me into heaven. But the glory of the Lord, as we're going to see, it is all those many beautiful things, but it is especially for a people who are living in darkness. And it is much more active than we've thought before. Arise, shine, it says in Isaiah 60, verse 1 to 3, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. Can you feel it? Can you feel the deep darkness in the world? We are much more able in a moment to see what is out there now than ever before. And it is ugly. It is dark. But the Lord will rise over you. And there it is again. His glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Have you seen the kings come yet? Are you watching for them? Some of them studied here in the United States. They were at our universities and we didn't even know it because they weren't king yet. The king of Thailand, the previous king who just passed away recently, he studied in America as a young man. We could have been his friend, at least some of us. So what does end time, last chance glory in the darkness look like? What's it going to look like? It looks like Isaiah 58 unusual sacrifice. Why Isaiah 58? We could spend a lot of time just in that one chapter. It's one of the few chapters that Ellen White recommends that we memorize. It's considered the mandate for God's end-time church. It has this amazing blend of all kinds of things that really are Jesus and what he looks like. But we're going to explore a few of the verses there. It says in Isaiah 58, 8, and this is why I make this connection to these other passages of glory filling the world, because it says, then your light, in verse 8, it says, then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Unpack that for a moment. We've already looked at some texts that said, God's righteousness will be seen by the whole earth. His glory will flood the earth like the ocean. And here it brings those two before 
in this passage, this is right after he talks about some things we'll look at, he says your righteousness is going to go before you like an army and the glory of God is going to be your rear guard. Now what's a rear guard? It's not a normal term we use, right? But it's that simple. It's the rear guard. So it's the ones watching out for the enemy coming from behind. So it's just like God went with the children of Israel before and around. They were surrounded. When he needed to, the cloud picked up and moved back there and blocked the enemy. So God is wanting to do something really beautiful around his people at a time when they're going to be persecuted and hurt in ways like never before. So what's the context? Here's what he says is his glory, his righteousness. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out, when you see the naked, that you cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Beautiful words, amen? speaking to a very religious people who were fasting, who were approaching God, who were saying, why are you not listening to us? We have prayed so much. We have fasted even. Why are you not listening? And he said, well, on the very day of your fast, you're exploiting your labors. You're oppressing the poor. You are neglecting all these things. I will not hear you unless you fast like this, a fast from selfishness. So to loose the bonds of wickedness, Modern slavery, a very serious and sobering thing. It's very real. In fact, this young lady, as she was growing up in central Cambodia, she didn't have much chance of going on to school, but she wanted with all of her heart to become a teacher. That was the one thing she wanted to do because that was the one person in her life that had showed her value and love. But because of her younger sister, who was handicapped, so Piep was not able to stay in school. She'd be in school for a little bit and then drop out to take care of the water buffalo or to help her mother with a little business at the market. And every time she tried to go and tried to advance, it just seemed it was constantly blocked until she met the Cambodian pastor, a Seventh-day Adventist pastor in the Bong area who reached out and befriended her and said to her mom, I really need somebody in our home to help my wife with the cooking and the cleaning. Could so Piep work with us and live there? and I'll send some money every month to you. Her mom was delighted, so Piep was ecstatic, and she went to be with them. But it didn't last long, because her sister's problems needed her even more, and her mother said, you have to go and get a job in the city where you can send more home. So she went into the city, got a job at a wealthy house, went in to begin working with them in what she thought was a, like a nanny job, and ended up being a slave. Just out of the blue, she found herself trapped in a home with other girls working for this family. It would take her to Singapore where she would shop all day and into the night for the things they needed, bring her back, and just, she was a slave. She could not come or go. She was locked behind the gates. This seems just out of the blue for us, something unimaginable. But it happens worldwide. Some countries are way worse. We have it here in the United States. It's happening, children, where we live in Houston, it's one of the worst areas in Atlanta, Georgia as well, where trafficking is going on. So, so Piep's in that house. She knows enough about God because she studied the Bible. She learned to pray. And so she begins to pray, God, you didn't make me to be a slave. 
You don't want me here forever. You have a plan for my life. Show me how I can escape. And one day, the gate was open, and she ran for it. Another girl saw her and followed and ran too. And they both ran as fast as they could to the bus station. Sophia got on. I don't remember what happened to the other girl where she went, but Sophia got on. She sat down. She looked out the window, and she saw them coming after her. She jumped up, ran to the bathroom, closed and locked the door, and stayed there until they were many miles down the road. As she got to her home city, not her town, but her home city, and she got off the bus, she stepped out, and the first people she saw was the Cambodian president and his wife. They were right there. She ran to them, they knew her, they hugged her, and she cried and poured out her story. And the next thing they did was they prepared and planned to send her to our college, sent her to our college in Moak Lake, where she could continue her studies to become a teacher. Praise God, amen? This is the glory of our living God. This is his righteousness lived out in a life, her life as she trusted in him and other people as they surrounded her with care. Slavery is real. It is something that is strong. But this is the glory of God that is rising in the midst of the darkness. To undo the heavy burdens, child labor is real. You don't have to be a slave to be in a very difficult situation with your own family working day and night with no chance to go to school. Now this little boy in the picture is working with bricks, old rock, bricks that are being crushed up to be used maybe to fill in some potholes or something all day long and through the afternoon. At least probably he's with his family, but he doesn't have that chance to go to school. Other children, like a friend told me there in Cambodia also, was working with a soy milk maker and having to stay up where the parts were extremely dangerous with one wrong move, she would lose a limb. Those are the kind of situations that many children suffer under without the ability to learn and grow. But to me, the worst is, under this one, to let the oppressed go free, is the reality of prostitution, that many of those slaves are in the sex industry, that many of them are sold into this or tricked into this, and that they, they spend their lives in the misery that we don't even want to talk about or imagine. And many times that is the end of their life, that through disease or through just not being cared for, that will be the end of what happens for them. That you break every yoke, the child soldiers that are caught up in the in the civil wars and the, in the problems that happen and are trained from early childhood because they're not as suspected or they're able to get certain places more easily and, or because simply they're easy to brainwash and they need somebody to look up to and care. Out of the 20 to 30 million slaves, the average price is $90 a piece. That is unfathomable. The, the slavery that we think of 150, 200 years ago at least they were worth a lot. No, there's no at least. That was all horrible. It's never anything good in any situation. But the sadness of now is that they are considered disposable. They're considered someone that if they get sick, why spend the money in the hospital? There is that lack of concern, respect, that is something that should anger us, something that we should... We should be moved by our church in the 1800s was involved in the Underground Railroad. We were part as a people of making sure that those who were trying to flee from the south up into the north would not be returned as the government 
at that time had laws that they must be returned to their slave owners in the South. We were a part of that people who cared about slavery. Do we today? Do we see it as our responsibility to show God's glory in the midst of this? Praise the Lord for the ministries that do, that are taking it seriously. And I love, don't you love walking through the booths and just seeing it's like, okay, it, it gives you a picture into the glory and the beauty of Jesus as you walk past the booth that is helping the blind. Jesus cares about the blind. And the next one, some little people group in Peru I've never even heard of, but this person is passionate about caring for them and making sure their medical needs and their educational needs and their spiritual needs are met. That's the heart of Jesus. And in Cambodia, I'm sharing a lot from Cambodia because that's where I know the best and there in, in Southeast Asia, but some of, the, some of the lay pastors that had been led to the Lord and were working there as that country got started 25 years ago and through the last years, they looked out in the city of Phnom Penh and they saw many, many children and adults rummaging through the, through the garbage dumps and seeking something that they could sell simply to have rice and some dried fish for supper. And they said, these children have to be in school. They have to not be working like this for their parents or maybe even someone else if they're street children. They need to be in school and they need a full meal every day. And so they started the Feed and Read schools. They're, they're with ASAP Ministries. And, and those children, it's just my favorite place to go in the world to get to go in and see them so excited to be studying, so thrilled to be able to play in a safe place and to have a meal together. They don't look super excited there. They must have been a scary photographer. But... But the joy that just comes out of those places is fantastic. And at the other school that started later among the Vietnamese immigrants, there's over a million Vietnamese that live in Cambodia. Many times they are, they are mistreated. They are not welcome. And so they struggle, and their children struggle. And many of them are at risk for prostitution. So a little school got started there. Pastor Khan got it going. And this lady on the left, she's one of the teachers. She's quite young. But she is one who, if not for this, would most likely have ended in prostitution. As we were there teaching, my wife was teaching a class, one of the teachers approached us and said, I have to tell you what one of the little girls said the other day. I was asking just a normal question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And one of the little girls said, I want to be a prostitute. I was shocked, she said. I could not believe she would say that. And I took her aside later and said, tell me, why did you say that? The little girl said, well, because I want to have pretty things and nice gifts. That's what she had been exposed to. Praise the Lord. Last time I was there, I heard the little girl no longer wants that as her career. She wants to be a teacher. That is what God's doing. That is his glory. Isaiah 58 has phrase after phrase of what the glory of God looks like. And one of the things says, to satisfy the afflicted soul. It's not just about the physical needs that people have, the hunger and the thirst and the need for safety, but it's that brokenness inside that sometimes you can see in someone's face as you pass them, but most often is hidden behind a smile. There it is. Whether it's a war widow, many who have moved to America from countries where even rape is used as a method of warfare to subdue the enemy, and here they are, and children who have been abused in a multitude of ways. The statistics are horrific. 
But the statistics are not what matter. It's the individual child, the individual person that Jesus looks down and says, if you cause one of these to stumble, it's better if you had a big, huge millstone around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. It matters to Jesus. And sometimes we forget it does because he's taking so long to come. But Jesus has entrusted to us the privilege of ministering to these children in his behalf. And he calls us to care for them. This is my wife, Julie. Julie's been through some tough things in her life. And she has a heart for children. Heart for children that have been molested, that have been hurt. And so she began a few years ago to work on a curriculum called Growing Safe, Rooted in God's Love. It's a 20 set, lesson of 20, that goes through Bible story, present day stories, and activities, and journals, and different things that just draw the children into experiencing the love of God, if they have come from a background like we just described, but also preparing them so that they don't go into that kind of a situation. How to be safe children who know when to run, who know when to scream, who know when to call for help, and who know what to do even if something bad does happen to them. So that's something special that ASAP Ministries has been behind. And one of the things with it is a little book that, that the Lord gave us called Jesus Understands. And in that book, we have it available at the ASAP Ministries booth. It goes through the story of Jesus for children who've never heard it and children who come from really rough backgrounds so that whether they're lonely and have been rejected by someone, a friend, maybe a father who has gone away, or someone who feels completely alone and overburdened, they can know that Jesus understands, that he himself was beaten till he was bloody. He was called things that no one should be called and mocked and made fun of. And he was even stripped and shamed in a way that many can understand. Jesus understands. There's beautiful ministries within our church and outside, like straight-to-the-heart ministries, where they lead people to the cross of Christ and to the life of Jesus who left heaven so he could enter our suffering and let us know that he understands and he will help us. He will heal us. Jesus, Isaiah 53 says, was wounded for our transgressions, was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Amen? This is the glory of God in the midst of our suffering. There at Booth 347, you can get that book and find out more about that curriculum if you want. There's a phrase at that end of the two verses we read earlier that I've pondered over a lot, and I don't know what it means. I'm not sure what it says, and not hide yourself from your own flesh. I think it means, as Jesus is saying, reach out to all these people that are in need and care for them, but don't forget your own family. Happens, doesn't it? Sometimes we as pastors especially are guilty of it, or leaders of ministries, or busy people in the church, and our own children need us. They need our time and our care. But I've also thought of the, the real reality that we have of the many who are aborted every day. 3,000 in America. 56 million worldwide every year. That's a country almost the size of Thailand. And the heart of Jesus breaks. It is not a simple matter. 
In America, we see the lines dividing again and the, the anger on both sides and the hurt on both sides. And so I want to share with you a story of a lady who was in a violent situation, a husband who was alcoholic, abusive. She was considering leaving him. She wasn't sure what to do. And then she realized she was pregnant. But there's no way she was going to bring a child into that situation. No way. And so she planned to go to California where the abortions were free. She just needed to save enough money. And as she saved that money, she handed it to a friend so she wouldn't use it. She said, watch this carefully for me. As soon as I have enough, I'm going. I'm not bringing up a child in this situation. But when she went to her friend, her friend said, uh, what money? Her friend had spent it. And as she went to a clinic to try to find out, she happened upon a Christian clinic, a crisis pregnancy clinic, in which they said, would you like to see a sonogram of the child? Did you know that almost every lady who sees a sonogram does not go through with an abortion? Where are we as a church? What are we doing? To give them a chance to see that child that is of their own flesh, that child that is loved by God. And so this young lady was born and she grew up. Some of you have met her. She has a booth downstairs. My mind just blanked on her name. I know her name. Anyway, she began to minister. She became a Seventh-day Adventist. She's a lawyer. And she started a ministry called Mafkia in order to help other people realize that that little one can become like her. But as she was doing that ministry, one day at a GYC convention, a lady named Debbie came and said to her, actually didn't say anything. She saw her ministry, was moved by it, was moved to tears. She walked out with her husband and began to just cry and cry. For she had had three abortions herself and had carried the pain and the suffering for many years, thinking of what that little child could be and, in fact, looking at this lady and saying, my daughter would be her age. My daughter would have been her age at this time. But the next time she met up with her, they began to share and they talked. And they decided that the ministry needed to include caring for those who have had abortions, both in the church and outside. And so together, these two ladies have formed another way to show the glory of God through mafkia.org, the booth number 547. Maybe you'll have a chance to talk with them. Maybe you'll have a chance to join among the Seventh-day Adventists who are saying it's time that we make a difference in the lives of both mother and father and child to be pro-everyone, to be able to care. What does end-time, last-chance glory in the darkness look like? It looks like Isaiah 58, unusual sacrifice. Here's what Job said when he thought of righteousness. What do you think of when you think of righteousness? I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor and I searched out the case that I did not know. I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from his teeth. Is that the righteousness by faith that you know? Is that what we typically think of? Wow, I love that passage. Job 29, verse 15 to 17. So what does that look like today? I think of Ani. In Thailand, actually in Laos, there are many, many unreached people groups and many tribes throughout the mountains. A lot of poverty. And so in Thailand where 
there is much prostitution and the visiting of sex tourists from around the world to the beautiful beaches and to the beautiful ladies, they come. And many of them come from the mountains of Laos, of Myanmar, of Thailand, and from Cambodia too. And one day, a man approached a mother in Laos. She was a Christian. She had a lot of children. And he said, we have some jobs. We are looking for good, excellent young ladies to work in our restaurants. Do you have any in your family? It seems so convincing. Maybe it was more easy to be convinced because they were so desperately poor and needed somebody to go to the city and work. And so Ani went. And Ani went, not to a restaurant, but to a bar and a brothel, clear in the southern tip of Thailand. And her life slowly disintegrated. She became sick. She ended up in the hospital. And her pimp was trying to make sure she would come out. He was trying to make sure she'd get the medical care. He was saving up the money till it was time, because he wasn't done with her. But a friend of ours named Pimpa, a Thai lady, a lady who has carefully, slowly, determinedly learned the system, works with the police, who sometimes are protecting such things, who knows the system well enough and has, on her own, learned to be a lawyer. Pimpa found out about Ani, and we got a call in which he said, Scott, do you have 10,000 baht? I said, tell me about it, Pimpa. What are you doing now? She said, we have a girl who's in the hospital, and if I can get 10,000 baht, which is about $300, I can get her out before the pimp comes back to get her out. We wired her 10,000 baht, and the next thing we knew, because she took her and drove all night, she was sitting in our friend's house, and we got to meet Ani, who was now rescued and safe and was on her way to her praying mother who didn't know what had happened to her daughter and was about to see that God was still in the job of rescuing lost sheep. Amen? Amen. That is the glory of Jesus. And organizations like ADRA have programs like their, their program called Keep Girls Safe. This is in Thailand. We've been there to Chiang Rai to see those young ladies who either have come back from that situation or have been prevented from going because they were seen as vulnerable and some money was given monthly to their parents so those girls can go and live at the school and learn to be safe and be educated so there's no need for them to go to the city for a job. Amen? You can find out more about that at ADRA downstairs at their booth, but that's Keep Girls Safe in Thailand, another way that we can make a difference for the glory of Jesus. So how important is this to Jesus? You know, it's feeling pretty important, isn't it? Isn't this really close to his heart? But it's so important that when Jesus sat on the mountain with his disciples and began to talk about what does it mean to be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ, he's made some very specific statements that were extremely important. He said we will be divided into true groups. And one of those groups he calls the goats, in which he says to them, I was hungry, and you didn't give me anything to eat. I was really, really thirsty. There was no clean water in our village. We had children dying of diarrhea because of what they had to drink from. We couldn't grow nutritious food because there was no water to grow that. And our children didn't get to go to school because they had to go miles every day to bring something back so we could cook. But you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger 
and you did not take me in. We have never been in the situation we are in now with the refugees and the internally displaced people. It is such a horrific crisis, and it comes and goes in the news, but it continues to rack the heart of Jesus, who himself experienced what it was like as a baby, which maybe he didn't remember. But then he was there in Egypt as a stranger. And then as he came back, his father, earthly father, did not think it was safe enough to return to Bethlehem, and they had to go back to, they had to go to Nazareth. Jesus said, it was me, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And he goes on to share those words that I'm sure he will say in such grief-torn sorrow because he will love those who neglected him but who truly rejected him in the person of the least of these. There in Matthew 24 and 25, there's several parables, parables that we're very familiar with, the wise and the foolish virgins, the five talents, the two and the one, the the good servants and the bad servant who beats the people entrusted to him. All of these parables, Jesus divides not the world and the church, but the church into two parts. One in which there is love, a true righteousness by faith that transforms the life, and in the others where that love does not exist. All of them which include the glory, the shining of good works, of taking what you've been entrusted and giving of your talents, of caring for those around you. So that when Jesus returns and he says, and we have these words in Revelation 19, 7 to 8, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, we've been, we've been careful. We don't want to associate the righteousness of Jesus too closely with our lives. We want to make sure that we recognize that there's not a single thread in the righteous robe of Jesus that is our own good works, right? Right? So we have been careful to say, well, you know, it says the righteous acts of the saints, but that's really Jesus' righteousness. And it is. No confusion necessary. But it is the righteousness of Jesus that covers our sins and transforms us and fills us. When we become a Christian, we turn from our sins and we ask Jesus into our hearts, and he's there. And that righteousness is lived out by faith, moment by moment, from glory to glory, as we continue to behold him and grow in that righteousness, which is a gift. Amen? This is what God is going to be looking for in us. But maybe if you heard me say last night as we were introducing the seminar that we tend to be on one extreme or the other. We're either really into all these good things we've been talking about today, but we're not so into talking about Jesus and preaching and doing Bible studies. And you know, I don't want to offend anybody. I just want to live out the love of Christ. Whereas on the other side, people tend to you know, be excited to share the good news and do public evangelism and Bible studies and knock on those doors. But Maybe forget to get to what we've been talking about today. But I want to take you back to Isaiah 58, to the glory of God that is there, so that we can remind ourselves, people do need to hear the message of faith in Jesus Christ. They do need to know. And it says there in Isaiah 58, verse 12, 
Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repair of the, re of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. And it goes on to talk about if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable. Talks about the return to the Sabbath of the Bible, the seventh day Saturday Sabbath that God gave at creation, and Jesus lived and even rested on the cross and the disciples kept these are truths that people need to know it's the day we honor our God who made us we are the people who restore the foundation of truth to build again the broken down wall of God's law this is part of Isaiah 58 and the glory and the righteousness of Jesus think though how this makes a difference in the lives of the people God has brought near us the Muslims the Buddhists the Hindus the Jews I think of the three angels' messages in Revelation 14, verses 6 through, on through the end, how God has given us a message that is so perfectly fitting for where we are today, surrounded by the world, people of other world religions. He has given us something that gives us a connection, a bridge to them, but then also something that they do not have. Let's look at that just for a moment. It's just a tiny picture because there's not time to go deeply into it. But I want you to begin to, to look at what you believe, to study again those beautiful messages that Mark Finley was sharing in the previous section of this, of this series. But look at them through the eyes of other people. The first one says, fear God. This is the everlasting gospel, and it starts with fear God. Doesn't that sound strange? Isn't it, don't be afraid, that the Bible says over and over? No, it also says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It speaks of respecting God so deeply, understanding that he is everlasting fire, that sin cannot dwell in his presence, that you turn from your sin. And instead of running from him because he is so frightening to sin, you run into his arms because there is nothing to fear in his heart. Fear God in his holiness, but don't ever fear his heart. Run to him. And this is a message that Muslims, first of all, they understand God is someone to be feared. As we think of their presentations in the Quran of God, he is mighty, he is powerful, he is holy, and yes, he is merciful and compassionate, but many times that is overshadowed because Jesus has given us the clearest revelation of who the Father is and that we do not need to fear his heart. So we both have a connection with them along with many other areas that we can connect with our lifestyle, but we also have a message in the face of Jesus Christ to reveal him. What about the section for the hour of his judgment has come? Who does that connect to? I believe it connects us closely and carefully to Buddhists and Hindus. Anyone who has that background of karma. For in karma, you do good, you will receive good. But if you do bad, you will receive bad. Do you believe that too? Maybe not to the extent of karma into many reincarnations. I doubt that. But we do believe that you reap what you sow, right? And we teach as a Seventh-day Adventist church that there is a judgment going on in heaven right now. Buddhists and Hindus believe in a judgment after this life, where if you don't get it in this life, you will get it in the next life. And we believe that in the judgment, God takes seriously whether or not we have just named the name of Jesus, but continued to live like the world, or if we have truly turned from sin and received salvation 
And so a judgment shows the fruit of who we have depended upon and the righteousness of Jesus in the life. We have, I have seen this over and over again with Buddhists who have huge questions in their mind about Christianity. I was on a plane coming back from Thailand, and I saw a man in an orange robe. He was older, he had his head shaved, and I thought, I bet he's from Thailand. I hope I get to talk to him. Sure enough, as I was going to the bathroom one time, he was fumbling with his immigration forms, and he motioned to me, said, can you help me? So I started speaking to him in Thai, and he began answering back in good English, but he still wanted help with his form. And he began to ask me, so I'm assuming since you're American, you're rich, right? I smiled, said, not exactly. Um, he said, but do you know that you can't get happiness from money? And I smiled, and I said, yes, I really agree with that. And then a little later he said, are you married? I said, yes, that's my wife up there. He said, do you have a girlfriend, a Thai girlfriend? I said, no, just this one lady my whole life. I said, well, you know, don't you, you can't find happiness in women either. I smiled and I said, I think I understand what you mean. Because he said, because even your wife, she's going to die someday. He was walking through his Buddhist values, and they're deep. No wonder many people are turning away from the Christian church and other religions and seeking after Buddhism because they see a peacefulness, a morality, a, an interest in life that touches the many areas that they're passionate about, whereas they don't see that in the church. And so this was his question to me. He finally turned to me and said, can you explain something I don't understand? How? can Christianity teach that you can just keep on sinning, 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 and God just keeps forgiving and forgiving you? That's immoral. And I realized that the ugliness of God's church had turned him away from Jesus. And I began to share with him that Jesus' death on the cross, well, we didn't get to the forgiveness part yet, that Jesus came to change our hearts, to move us from selfishness to compassion, that it's about life transformation of writing God's law on the heart and on the mind, that the same things he was seeking at are the things that are given to us through Jesus Christ. Amen? So the hour of his judgment has come, and have we got an everlasting gospel to share with Buddhists and Hindus? Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the spring of waters, this is a, such clear evidence that the Sabbath continues on in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. And it is such a close connection with Jews who say, really? You mean your people don't just keep the Sabbath if they live in Israel, like many Christians do? You mean they keep it worldwide from sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night? And they're ready to hear and to listen more. But that one piece I left out, give glory to him. Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of judgment has come. Worship him is that one that is so crucial. This message that we have to share that's calling people back to truth, especially is a message about the glory of God. Now, we've been talking a lot about how to give glory to God through how we live. And we've talked about it in the past, about how what you eat and whatever you drink, whatever you do, give glory to God. But the text I like the best is in Galatians 6, verse 14 to 15. <clears throat> it says in the King James Version, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. What is he saying? This is what it means to give glory to God, to not put your trust in anything else except for Jesus Christ 
and him crucified. For your forgiveness of sins, which is incredibly good news to a Buddhist and a Hindu, because they do not have it in their religion. You should forgive other people, but your karma is going to come back on you. But here, he also touches on the reality that the cross crucifies our selfishness and sets us free to be compassionate. This is how we give glory to God and honor him. The second of the three angels' messages also touches the world religions incredibly as something we need to preach and to share and to love them into. Babylon is fallen. We typically think of this as fallen churches. We typically think of it as those who once were the followers of Christ but have turned away and teach basically doctrines of devils instead of the truth of the word of God and traditions of men instead. But we also, as we look in Scripture and in Ellen White's writings, we see that this is also applied to the religions of the world. And there are many, many of the adherents of these religions who are looking elsewhere, who are tired of the emptiness of the ceremonies and the temple services, who look at their own priests and monks and rabbis and say, where is the teaching in their lives? who are crying out for something real and something better. And so we can say to them, organized religion is fallen. Just the other day in the Cambodian village where we do ministry, I was talking and sitting with a lady eating some of her watermelon, and she was sharing with me about how her husband had really struggled in the hospital before he died. I was gone during the funeral, and I was stopping by her house. And as we talked, I wanted to give her something that would maybe help her. We hadn't broached Christian things before. She knew we were Christians, but it just had not been, she just hadn't seemed open. And so I gave her a couple Bible study lessons that we had from Cambodia. And then I gave her the My Language, My Life card, which you'll find right out here on there. At least you can take one, but you can order more of these. It has over 150 languages of biblical Seventh-day Adventist materials in one place, just links to websites of Adventist World Radio and 3ABN and different, different programs in different languages. So when you meet somebody and they say they speak Hindi, you can help them find Hindi on their smartphone and listen to the gospel. But I handed this to her and I said, do you like to read more? Can you read Cambodian still pretty well? She's been in America for 25 years. Or do you prefer to, to listen? She said, I can do both. And, and so I shared that with her. But she said, you know, all religions are good. They lead you to what's best. And I, and I said, you know, I've heard that a lot in Cambodia. And I said, I kind of come to the conclusion that you're right. All religions teach us the good path, at least some of it. But we need something more than that. We, we know what to do, but we just can't seem to do it. And she could understand. We tried to get her husband to quit smoking and a bunch of things. And he just was like, I'm too old for that. I'll just enjoy it till I die. We know what to do, but we need power. And so that is what we can share. Babylon is fallen. Why is it that we are so into it as a Seventh-day Adventist church to talk about the beasts and the little horn to show how the Catholic Church changed the law of God and, and, and changed Christianity away from following the Word of God? Why do, we, why do we have to point out such things? Well, because it replaces Jesus. If you go through the sanctuary service where every single aspect of it shows and, and lifts up Jesus Christ as our Savior and our mediator in heaven, you then can find in the Catholic system, not among people, but in the Catholic system, and of course people are following and listening, 
every single one of those aspects of Jesus has been replaced by earthly priests and earthly ceremonies and situations. But not just them. It's true of the Buddhists and the Muslims and the Hindus, and it can even be true in Protestant churches as well, where we're replacing Jesus by experiences, by ceremonies, by the traditions of men. And so we are called to point them to Jesus. The Bible, not the Bible, but in Great Controversy, page 390, it says, Notwithstanding the spiritual darkness and alienation from God that exists in the churches which constitute Babylon, the great body of Christ's true followers are still to be found in their communion. God has his people everywhere, not just among other Christians. I'm going to skip on past this for the lack of time, but I think we know clearly that as we connect with people who are upset with the United States, many people around the world, various world religions, we can actually identify with them and let them know that the Bible predicts that Christian, so-called Christian America will become not like a lamb-like beast, but by like a dragon, speaking like a dragon. That we can help them see that we have a message that connects with their hearts, but takes them on to the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The message of righteousness by faith is to sound from one end of the earth to the other to prepare the way of the Lord. This is the glory of God which closes the work of the third angel. Testimonies, volume 6, page 19. Standard after standard was left to trail in the dust as company after company from the Lord's army joined the foe and tribe after tribe from the ranks of the enemy united with the commandment-keeping people of God. Testimonies for the Church, volume 8, page 41. Some different things that just help us to see that while the church is going to be shaken and struggles so much, and many will leave, thousands upon thousands more will come to flow, to spread the glory of God. In heathen Africa, in the Catholic lands of Europe and of South America, in China, in India, in the islands of the sea, and in all the dark corners of the earth, God has in reserve a firmament of chosen ones that will yet shine forth amidst the darkness, revealing clearly to an apostate world the transforming power of obedience to his law. Last Day Events, page 211. This is what we're sharing, is that Jesus can transform the life in such a way that the world can see his glory, his beauty. This will shine with the glory of God. We're talking about the 144,000 in the Bible who are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. What does that mean? What is Revelation 14.4 trying to tell us about following the Lamb? Well, where did the Lamb of Jesus go? Can you picture him? walking into a village, first person that he meets perhaps has leprosy out there on the outskirts of the city. While everybody has shunned them and while they haven't felt human touch perhaps in years and their, their skin is falling apart and they're limping because they could not feel what was happening, Jesus comes, what do you want me to do for you? I would like to, if you're willing, I would like to be clean. Jesus says, I am willing Instead of just speaking the word, he places his hands on that man's filthy skin. And he says, be clean. And immediately, he is clean. This is the glory of Jesus. This is the lamb who continues on and finds that blind person stumbling in the dark, begging because he has no one to help him. And he places his hands on his eyes and he causes him to see. And the first thing he sees is that shining face of the glory of God looking at him and on he goes and perhaps there's a child possessed by an evil spirit 
as they are around the world still today, Cambodia and India and the United States, desperately needing someone to set them free, and Jesus comes near and casts out that spirit, returns the child to her father whole and complete, unable to grow to become a young man. This is the Jesus that we must follow the Lamb wherever he goes, the Jesus who came to the Garden of Gethsemane with courage, with might like a soldier marching into Jerusalem, and then fell on the ground in agony and cried out three times, Take this cup away from me. What was going on? How could our courageous Jesus be like that? But he was tasting of the cup of the wrath of God that he was about to drink. Not wrath like we think of it, God being angry with us, but the consequences of sin. And then he went to that cross. It was not the nails that held him there. It was his love that held him there. And that love was tested to the the furthest extent that it is possible to be tested. Because we are told that the second death that Revelation speaks of is not like the first death. It's just like a sleep that you can be woken from. It's not a problem. Just like Jesus said, Lazarus sleeps. I go to wake him up. No, the second death is from which there is no hope of resurrection. It is an end, a complete, a complete blackness and separation from God. And this is what Jesus bears on the cross. As the sins of the world press heavily upon him, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he cannot see past the grave. What he prophesied beforehand of rising on the third day, he cannot see anymore because of the weight of sins. And yet he knows he has the power to leave and to go back to heaven. No one seems to appreciate it except for the, the, one, the one thief on the cross. But in that moment, he looks at never existing again. And he says, I want you in heaven for eternity. Even if I cannot be there, I want you with my father. And so he goes and he commits his spirit into God's hands breath into God's hands, and finally he rises up and cries out, it is finished. He has won, and he has died. It says about the people at the end of time, that 144,000 who follow the Lamb wherever he goes, that they do not love their lives to the death. How about you? In order to not love your life to the death, it means you must not love your life now, which means that you say to God, whatever you want of me, you can have. And when you do that, he will guide you in ways that you absolutely love. If you hold on to your life, you lose it. If you lose your life, for my sake, Jesus said, you will find it. How many times I've found that true as God has asked me to be a pastor and I didn't want to be a pastor, to be a missionary and I never wanted to be that, to come home and I didn't want to come, to go back and I didn't want to go. And every time as I've finally surrendered to the Lord, it's been exactly what I would have wanted, exactly the joy that he longs to give us when we surrender to him. So what unusual sacrifice is God calling you to? What do you think? Need a moment to think, right? We're just going hard at it, but perhaps God has been stirring you as we prayed at the beginning that he would speak to you specifically of what he wants you to know, what he wants you to do. It may happen now as we talk a little bit more. We have 10 minutes till we close. Or it may happen later this afternoon, or it may not happen until all this busyness of this crazy weekend, wonderfully crazy weekend is over. But begin to ask God, God, what unusual sacrifice are you calling me to? As Jesus was called to himself. 
Could it be that he's calling you to sacrifice your privacy? I can't think of almost anything more dear to Americans. I'm sure there's some who are not Americans here. Maybe it's easier for you in some cultures where we're just used to living together and all around each other. But Americans, we love our privacy. In Cambodia, there was a garbage pile next to a hospital. In those days, there wasn't a good garbage system, and the people were very clean in their homes, but they would put things outside, and there was no pickup yet. And so out on that pile, one day, a, a young teenage girl and a young teenage boy slipped quietly, looking around to see anybody was noticing. And they set their newborn baby down because they didn't know what to do with it. It was too soon and too scary, and they ran away. And so that little baby boy was lying there, maybe crying, maybe just lying there, blinking in the sun, eyes goopy, and a grandma lady was walking by, an elderly lady, and she saw him, and she thought, hmm, maybe I should take care of him. What should I do to help him? I can't have, no, I know I could sell him. She picked him up, and she began to walk through the hospital corridors trying to sell this baby. When Nari walked in, she also was having problems with her eyes, and she was coming to take care of it. And she saw the lady, and the lady approached her and said, do you want to buy a baby? Nari looked at her and said, what are you talking about? Do you want to buy a baby? It's $200. She said, of course I don't want to buy a baby, but yes, I will take the baby and raise it. I will take care of it as my own. No, I need $200. The lady walked away. Nari began to rack her brain, where can I get $200? She was a seamstress. She didn't know how she could do that, and she went on home. She wasn't going to ask her neighbors because they would then question her, and they would know where this baby had come from. She didn't want to raise a child that was known as someone from a garbage dump. And she sold some of her items and finally found enough, and she walked back, found that lady still carrying the little boy, gave her the $200, and walked home with that little baby boy. Began to raise it. There were five ladies in that house, three aunties and an older sister, and this mother and little Barah began to grow up. They fed him well, started to spoil him, and then began to have him work hard in the home. And he grew to be a fantastic young boy. He was put in our feed and read school for a little while and did well there. You can see him right here. He's the one with the impish grin. And uh, Barah just kept growing and growing. We got to meet him. But isn't this true? A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. Psalm 68, 5 to 6. That's what God did for Barah. Josiah and I got to meet him quite a few years ago. He continues to grow. I wonder where he's headed, what he's going to do. He's a special young man. I love him. We just got to see him in March again. God is going to do great things for him because somebody said, I'm going to sacrifice my privacy and take someone else into my home. Is your home open to an international student for a year, to maybe a refugee who needs a place to hang out, maybe not every day, but on Thanksgiving vacation or on a weekend, come out and grow a garden in your place? How about your church fellowship? Is God calling you to sacrifice that? There's a quote of a rather long one. I won't read all of it. God calls for Christian families to go into communities that are in darkness and error and work wisely and perseveringly for the master. To answer this call requires self-sacrifice. If families would locate in the dark places of the earth, places where the people are enshrouded in spiritual gloom and let the light of Christ's life shine out through them, a great work might be accomplished. 
God needs church planters. You may not know a clue what that means or how to do it, but Adventist Frontier Missions can tell you all about it downstairs. They can send you where they need you to go. You can go as this family did. They left a good pastoral position in Minnesota, came down for a volunteer position with us to reach out to Afghani refugees. They've never worked with Muslims in their life. They're learning as they go. Maybe he wants you to sacrifice your ministry within your church. You may be very busy helping wonderful Christians who know the truth already. Someone else in the church can do it, but maybe you have a heart to reach out to these people. Evangelism 570 is the theme of our ministry, Reach the World Next Door. We should be able to see in the multiplying opportunities to reach many foreigners in America a divinely appointed means of rapidly extending the third angel's message into all the nations of earth. God in his providence has brought men to our very doors and thrust them, as it were, into our arms that they might learn the truth and be qualified to do a work we could not do in getting the light before men of other tongues. Do you see? We talked about that earlier. God has sent the world to us. It was too dangerous to go there, so God sent them here. Cambodia, Afghanis, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus. We have a children's program going on among the refugees, teaching them moral lessons and introducing them to Jesus in their homes with their families. You can learn more there at reachtheworldnextdoor.com. And the cards on the way out, you can pick up one of these. We have a two-semester training program for full-time ministry, but you can also do many of the things that are there right in the place where you're at. If you know anybody who's not sure what they're doing this August, that's today, isn't it? August 1st today, starting August 21, we have a program, and we still have some openings. Maybe God is calling you to sacrifice your luxuries. You say, wait a minute, I'm not rich. I don't have that much money. Let's compare ourselves to our brothers and sisters who don't have enough to take their children to the hospital today, who are wondering if they're going to be able to put food on the table tonight for their children, and they are Seventh-day Adventists. These are people that need our love. Desire of Ages, page 639, an amazing chapter called The Least of These says, while you were feasting at your bountifully spread table, I was famishing in the hovel or the empty street. While you were at ease in your luxurious home, I had nowhere to lay my head. While you crowded your wardrobe with rich apparel, I was destitute. While you pursued your pleasures, I languished in prison. We need to live simply so others can simply live. Maybe God is calling you to sacrifice something that you don't have to have. None of us can tell each other how that looks. We cannot judge each other. Each of us have different amounts that come and go. Each of us have different things we waste things on, but we can ask the Holy Spirit to impress us. We can have a little jar, like that picture showed, that we can teach ourselves and our children, our family, to put something that we have truly sacrificed, that God may bless it. He may need to help us to sacrifice our busyness so we can train our own children. Adventist Home 489 speaks of the many children who work powerfully at the end of time to share the gospel where we cannot share. But we need to train them now by taking them with us and helping them to learn to share as we reach out. So, what do you think? What we've been talking about is a huge high and holy call. Amen? If you're like me, I look at that and and I think, how can I be that? What about the selfishness? What about the, the self-absorption that we are just so much about? But that's the gospel. That's what we've been talking about, is that Jesus has the ability to come and do that. The 144,000 that we've been lifting up is so special at the end of time. 
these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 7:14. There's hope for us. We can take our spotted garments and wash them white in the robe of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Jesus himself, 1 Peter 2, 24, bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Therefore, we mentioned that already, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Today, afresh, you have been called to be an ambassador for God, to take the light of God's glory to the entire world. It will be a message of righteousness by faith. It will be a spoken three angels message for the whole world. But as Christ's Object Lessons, page 415 to 19 says, the last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. The children of God are to manifest his glory. The light of the Son of Righteousness is to shine forth in good works, in words of truth and deeds of holiness. The whole earth, wrapped as it is in the darkness of sin and sorrow and pain, is to be lighted with the knowledge of God's love. From no sect, rank, or class of people is the light shining from heaven's throne to be excluded. There is nothing that the world needs so much as the manifestation through humanity of the Savior's love. God is wanting us to rise up and be his people now. Will you? Will you be that with me as we seek the Lord? I want to give you a moment of quietness to pray, to simply ask the Lord to speak to our hearts. Father in heaven, today we've looked a little bit at the darkness of this world. We kept glancing up at Jesus, the light of your glory shining from his face. And we want to see more and more of his glory. There is too much darkness in this world. But we want to be part of that light that fills the earth at the end of time. We know that the darkness will get just more and more intense. It will become a persecuting darkness in which we must stand for you and your truth though the heavens fall. But we also know that we cannot be consumed merely with the words and with the truths of it in just a conceptual way, that we must live out the truth of Jesus Christ, the love, the glory that he lived while on this earth. And so, Father, I plead that you would forgive us for the ways that we have wasted our money, our time, our own Christian fellowship on ourselves, the way we have neglected the refugees and the immigrants and the others that you've sent right here and ways that we have, have not sent the food and the water, the safety around the world and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We plead for your forgiveness, Father. Sometimes it's been in ignorance and error, but many times we've just been comfortable and happy. And so, Father, we ask that you would not only forgive us, but you would transform us, that you would give us the heart of Jesus Christ, that you would give us the love of Jesus Christ, the faith of Jesus, these things that the Laodicean church is lacking, the righteousness of Christ. We might, like Job, put on your justice as a robe and as a turban, that we might go and and pluck pluck the victim from the enemy's teeth. Lord, show us what it is that you want us specifically to do. It may 
be grand and glorious in some awesome ministry for you somewhere. Or it may be simply the caring for someone who's sick in our family, or reaching out to a neighbor who's lonely. It starts, Lord, right where we are. And so we ask that you would make us faithful and loving right in those places. But Lord, we ask for you to swell our numbers, to, to swell our hearts, to reveal to us more and more of Christ so that we can show the world more and more of you too. Father, thank you for being with us. Go with us and send us to our individual tasks for your glory. May the rest of this weekend we be praying for one another and seeking the Spirit of God until your church is transformed and the outpouring of the final measure of your Holy Spirit comes and your loud cry goes forward with a glory that makes you look truly good and beautiful in the face of the worst darkness yet. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI. Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.